Lord, we come before you now. This is your word. It is holy. It is good. It leads us to life and light. It brings heat. It is truth set on fire. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would bring us here this morning, that you would set this man before these people aflame, that the gospel of truth would burn brightly, and that we would go forth from this place ignited, knowing that your spirit is at work within us, and that we are the bearers of the kingdom, and that we go forth to declare its greatness, its power, its might, and to point our friends and co-workers to Jesus, who they desperately need, and who we desperately need. Thank you, Jesus, that you have met us, and that you meet us this morning in your word. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Would you please stand as we give attention to God's Word? We're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He, that meaning Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we've been been going through this series on Mark. We've seen that Jesus has this habit of going out and teaching, preaching, instructing people in the kingdom of God. He's answering questions. He's declaring to them the realities of their condition. He's drawing them to a place where they would do exactly what he began this gospel declaring that they would repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' business. And here we see that after he healed the paralytic, um, we don't know how much longer, we don't know where this is in the time frame of things, but somewhere after that time, he is walking beside the sea. He sees Matthew or Levi, as he's known here in the gospel of Mark. He calls to him. We see the reality of, of Levi getting up and coming and following him. And so what I want us to look at is to see that we're seeing this reality taking place, these understandings going forth. What we also need to see is is that what Jesus is now drawing us to and what the Gospel of Mark is drawing us to is that Jesus is not only the King, He's not only showing Himself as a Savior, He's now through these various scenarios showing Himself as a physician. And he's showing himself as a very good physician because you know what good physicians are? You know the kind of people that are really good doctors? They're people that understand the sickness that people have, they understand the cure that's needed, and they know the people that they're dealing with. That's a good physician. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is not an aloof doctor who stands back and waits for people necessarily to come to him. He rather is one who is out 
among the people. Now, granted, they do come to him, but he is out among them. He's in a place where they can gather to him. He is very ready to share with them the good news of hope, the reality that the kingdom of God has come, and he is also ready to forgive and heal them. And through these various scenarios that we're seeing here at the first in this chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing this, this pattern of Jesus identifying the real issues, bringing real healing, and then addressing those who would stand against the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want us then to look at here is the fir- in the first point is to look at the call to the outcast. I want you to understand very clearly that Jesus was committing, in some real sense, religious, political, and patriotic suicide when he called Levi. And that might not seem significant to you at the point, but I want you to consider this. Think about all the rhetoric we hear in the news today about who's patriotic and who's not. Who's made comments that, that have cost them the nomination for various parties to run for the president. And we're going to hear about this more as we see the, the two candidates narrowed down to two and, and, uh, with a possibly a little Ralph Nader thrown in on the side. And, and we, and we watch, and we watch this whole thing play out. We'll hear about people making comments or, or bungling statements or that was a lack of wisdom to make. I want you to kind of see all of that as when Jesus called Levi, he did the bungle of bungles as far as a person in Israel was concerned. I mean, if you were trying to grow as a leader, this was probably not the way to do it if you wanted to get the power base, if you wanted to get the super delegates on your side. Okay? And, and that is the reality that's going on here. Calling Levi was no better than calling lepers. To be a tax collector in this day and time was to be the worst kind of human being as far as many Jews were concerned. Tax collectors were Jews who basically had defected, for lack of a better word. They had become, for all intents and purposes, pirates. They had kind of their own code of ethics. They were making money. They were profiting off their own people. And yet they were still in a very despised position as the Romans and Herod's administrations. And there's some debate in in the commentaries as to whether... Levi was a tax collector for one of the Herods, or whether he was a tax collector for Rome. It's possibly could have been both, I guess. And, and what really is the point is, is that in any way, shape, or form, he was collecting taxes on his people for his own personal benefit and for the benefit of a foreign power, not the government of the Jews. And so what I want you to see is, is that he, they were not very popular when it came to patriotism. They were not very popular when it came to religious zeal of throwing off the shackles of the Herods and Rome, who the Herods represented, and once again establishing the monarchy of, of, of the king of the Jews. You see that in every way, shape, or form, Levi stood in opposition And Jesus calling him was to unite himself, for all intents and purposes, with a traitor. That's what he did. He called someone who was an outcast and a traitor. So I want to set that up because you begin to see something about how Jesus is operating. Now, the last thing I want us to realize is, is that in many senses, Matthew was a man who, or Levi was a man who lived in his own country and yet was a man without a country. 
he didn't really have any place to call his own. He was perceived as unclean, an outcast. He was ceremonially unclean. He was morally unclean. He was the worst of the worst. And what does Jesus do? He comes down by the sea. He sees Levi sitting at the tax booth doing what tax collectors do, taking tolls and pocketing a little bit of the extra they added on to it for their services. And he calls him to come follow him. And the Gospel of Mark doesn't give us a lot of details as to whether Levi had heard Jesus preach before or if Levi had had other connections. It leaves that for for other Gospels to, to give indication. For Mark, what he wants you to see is in some real sense, this sure looks a whole lot like what just happened before. Because look at the language that's used here. Look what happens. It says that in verse 14, And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Kind of sounds like the text we looked at several weeks ago where the paralytic was laying on the bed and Jesus says, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he rose up, took up his mat and went home. See, there's supposed to be this notion that somehow a real miracle, if you will, has taken place. Levi has come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and is now not just numbered among the masses, the crowds that are following Jesus and listening to Him. He now is counted among the number of those who Jesus will establish as one of the pillars, one of the twelve tribes of the new Israel. That's no small thing, this tax collector. And so Jesus has called to this outcast and drawn him in. Now the next thing I want us to look at then is what happens as a result. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now I want you to notice that what happens here is, is that the idea that's going on here is this big banquet takes place, this big celebration. Now I don't know if this was a, a Levi coming out party. I'm, I'm, I've come into the kingdom and I'm declaring to everybody, guess what? I'm one of Jesus' followers. I'm not sure exactly what the scenario was, but, but I want you to get the idea that what we have here is this great banquet, and the guest list is a bunch of notables of society, sinners and tax collectors. Not exactly the guest list that the average churchgoer would expect to see at the banquet table where Jesus and his disciples were to be found. And I want you to see that that's exactly what Mark is drawing you to see in this passage, what happens. This guest list is a bunch of notorious people. Now, there's some dispute over whether these sinners were merely people who were ceremonially unclean or whether they were notorious sinners. Let me just say this to you. I think it's unwise and unhelpful to try and draw these particular distinctions between what, whether it was sinners of a ceremonial kind or of a notorious kind, because here's the bottom line. Jesus called out to both. We know that prostitutes were counted among his followers. They were notorious. We know that tax collectors were notorious sinners. We know that, that Jesus 
was reaching out to people who were perceived by the religious establishment as unclean and unfit for the banquet table of heaven. And yet here we find the king of heaven reclining at a table with notorious sinners and tax collectors. And I want you to see this once again, who these people are, so that you will start to understand that when the scribes of the Pharisees come, they're asking a question that at least on the surface seems rather legitimate, because look at what they then ask. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said, disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors? Why does he hang out with sinners? What is he doing with those kind of people? And what I want you to realize is, is that what is going on here is this notion that these people are the kind of people who just go out and play fast and easy with grace. And what I want to tell you, men and women, is this is often the very accusation that when people start to see the gospel, that, and when the gospel is rightly preached, people often will start to say things like, do you know what people will do with that? Do you know what kind of people you're saying that to? Do you understand how they've lived their whole life? Do you understand the habits they've formed? Don't you know what people are like? You've got to lay down the law. That's what keeps them straight. But what I want you to see very clearly what's being played out in this scenario is that this is not a banquet of pirates and thugs. This is a banquet of the redeemed. See, it tells you in the text, and you might go right by it, it says that Jesus was sitting at the table with sinners who were, and, and tax collectors, for there were many who followed Him. Now, the interesting thing about that followed Him is the notion that every time that word is normally used in these first few chapters, it always has to do with those who've bent the knee to King Jesus. See, Peter, Andrew, James, John, now Levi... They've all bent the knee. They've gone to follow Him. Not just to stand on the periphery and go, that Jesus man, He's cool. He knows how to zing the Pharisees and it's awesome. That's not what it means by followed Him. It means people who become keenly aware and know who they are and recognize who He is and they desperately need Him. They are under no illusion that somehow they can get righteous on their own. They need the righteous one to make them holy. And that's who's at this banquet table. Now, I watched, I don't know if you've seen this movie recently. Um, they had the other day on the movie channel, um, The Bounty. And I'm not talking about The Bounty with Mel Gibson, although that one can be a good movie too. I'm talking about the older one. Um, and, and what you see played out there in this scenario is, is that these men ultimately kick off mean old Captain Bly, who's just almost unsufferable, who, who just lays the letter of the law on them. And what they end up doing is they th ultimately throw off the shackles and they commandeer the ship and they sail back to Tahiti and they get their wine and they get their women and they get their song and they begin to sail around so they finally find this island which has been mischarted. And it's 130 miles off the, where the, it says it's supposed to be, so they figure we're completely free. We have come to our Eden. 
And we can now live and frolic and play in paradise to our heart's content. But the man who started the mutiny stands back and realizes he cannot partake in all this frolicking, in all this banquet, in all this, fr- all this frivolousness because he recognizes that for honor's sake, he cannot join in because he realizes what they did was wrong and until they're cleared, he can never truly enjoy this great banquet. And see, what I want you to see, what's, what's being played out here is this idea of, is that Jesus has come, and we sometimes may be people who come to the banquet table and say, until I get cleared, I can't really enjoy the feast. And see, and this is what the gospel is saying to you. If you recognize that you are a sinner, and you look to Jesus who has paid the price, you are no longer under guilt. You've been set free. Come to the table without money and eat. Don't spend your food on what does not satisfy. Don't eat trivial things when you could dine on the great feast. You see, the idea here is is that you come and you can't really enjoy something until you're set free from the burden. And that's what these people have been set free from. They've been set free from the burden of their guilt of the reality of who they are, of the reality that they are outcasts, that they are people who are unacceptable. And see, don't you see that what the gospel is really drawing us to is that we have to become people who really see ourselves that way. And so let's look at the last point I want us to look at, and and that is this one. The wisdom of the kingdom. This question that Jesus then asks them, that they ask, and then Jesus then responds to them, um, reveals a problem between religion and the kingdom of heaven. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees was not their religious fervor. They were very religious people. They kept and sought to keep the law in all this. They'd come up with laws upon laws upon laws, and then more laws to help them keep all those laws to make sure that they did not step outside of the procedures that God had laid down for them. And you have to understand that when they ask this question, not to Jesus directly, but to his disciples, there is a sense not only of perplexity, but a sense in some ways of moral outrage. Because see, they've been following Jesus, and they appreciate what he's had to say, and so they are standing there going, what in the world is this man doing eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's the same idea with Simon the leper when, when he looks over at Jesus and says, surely this man, if he was really the Messiah, would know the kind of woman that's touching his feet. Doesn't he know what kind of woman she is? And see, Jesus' response to them is, yes, I know very well what kind of woman she is. I know very well what kind of people they are. So I want us to look then as we start to see the wisdom of the, of the kingdom because what it really draws us to ask is this question. Is Christianity doable? So I think many people are called to Christianity and they like it because they see it as, finally, we've got a list of do's and don'ts. 
And if you don't have a list of do's and don'ts, what many Christians want to do is they want to put do's and don'ts back on you so that you will now have a good list so you can do what's necessary. So that you can somehow feel like, I am now doing my part, I'm measuring up, I'm being the person that God intends me to be, and that somehow is making me holy. You see, there's a tendency in all of us to have that mentality. And we see within Christian circles even today, those who are unsatisfied, they are so frustrated with people not being obedient to God's clear commands that they want to reshackle people with old doctrine which would have them believe that somehow their obedience is connected to their salvation. And that is wrong. It is no mistake in this world as we look around it that Islam and Mormonism are two of the fastest growing religions in the world. Why? Because people want something that is doable. And there are people who want to take God's ways and God's word and make it something that is doable. And that's exactly what Jesus will have no part of. And he makes it very clear in this passage. He will have no part of it. Look at what he then says to them. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, don't you see what you want to do with that? Don't you sort of want to, if you're really being thoughtful about this, don't you want to say, oh, so if you're righteous, you don't need Jesus. If you're a sinner, then you need him. Don't you see the dilemma in what Jesus has said? If you're a person who does all the things you're supposed to do and acts in all the ways you're supposed to act and does everything the Lord calls you to do, you don't need Jesus. And so if there's any of you here this morning that fit that bill, I think you could leave right now because you really don't need us. You don't need this message. You don't need this table. Right? If that's really what Jesus is saying, if there's someone who could be righteous among us, then you don't need the gospel. You don't need Jesus. But isn't the whole point that Jesus is making in that statement that there is none righteous? No, not one. Isn't the point he's really drawing the Pharisees to? Don't you see that even the Pharisees who are opposing him, he's trying to have mercy by saying, do you really honestly believe that you have kept the law perfectly? Do you really believe that you are not also a sinner and just as guilty before God as the tax collector? See, isn't he saying exactly what James says? If you break just one point of the law, one, just one, you're guilty of the whole thing. Well, I only told in my whole life one white lie. You're guilty of adultery. You're guilty of murder. You're guilty of coveting. You're guilty of the whole shebang. Well, I one time took my little sister's beanie baby because she was making me upset, but that's the only bad thing I ever did. Then you're just as guilty as an adulterer or a murderer. You're just as guilty as a thief. You're guilty. 
you are desperately sick and you need a physician to heal you. And there is only one. Don't you see what's happening here? There is only one. The wisdom of the kingdom is, is that Jesus is trying to lay out very clearly through a, through a proverb of the righteous don't need a physician. Sinners, sick people do. You need to see yourself as a sick person who needs a Savior, who needs a physician, who needs Him to call you because you will not come if He does not call. See, we have to become people who really are convinced that we would not go seeking Jesus. We're not the kind of people who would do that. See, if we have our free will, our free will leads us to run away from Jesus, not to run to Him. To go hide Him in the trees and to put on fig leaves and to try and figure out how to cope with the life we've been given. Not to come and stand naked before a holy and righteous God and plead His mercy. But that's what we have in Christ. That's what's happening in this very passage. Is that the reality of the hope of humanity stands and says, I have not come for the righteous. I've come for sinners. See yourself as a sinner and come to Me that I might make you well. Now as we finish this, I want us to notice then this idea of the call of grace. Grace does not condone, promote, or give room for rebellious life. It doesn't. It calls the sinners, and it calls freely. It doesn't stand in judgment of them, but it does call them away from that. It calls them to be aware of their need. It calls them to believe that the physician can actually heal them. And it calls them to then submit themselves to the doctor's orders. And that's the one that's really hard for us, isn't it? I mean, come on, men. You know, the doctor says, you know, if you do this, if you rest, if you do this, take this medicine. We go, yeah, yeah, okay. I'll sort of take the medicine. I'll sort of rest, but I'll check the Internet a lot and type emails to everybody at work and I'll, right? Or if you've got a bum knee and you have the surgery. I mean, what's the worst thing in the world is, for an athlete is having that ACL and, and them telling you, you've got to stay off it for six weeks, you just got to, or six months. I mean, it's just phenomenal to me. They can rebuild the thing, and you can be back out there playing professional sports in a matter of months. Pretty incredible. But still, the fact is, the only way to do that is to follow the doctor's orders. If you would be free, you got to listen to the doctor. If you would be well and to live as a well person, you got to listen to the doctor. And don't you see that that's exactly what the gospel does? It calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light, not so we can run right back into the filth, but so that we might be set free to live well. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. Not to live in this raucous, rebellious, pirate life. He's called them away from their piracy and called them to health and wholeness and wellness in Him. Now, in conclusion then, I want to say a couple of things to us this morning. Do you feel like an outcast? Is there somebody that came in this morning and said, I just don't fit in among religious people. I just, I just can't get into all that stuff. I don't know how to operate with that. I just, you know, I know what I've done, and I just, I don't fit in. I'm not righteous. Jesus says there's no sin that is too great that you can't come. 
So come to the Savior. Second person I want to talk to this morning are, are you the kind of person that's afraid to mingle with unbelievers and notorious sinners? I mean, when you think about people doing wicked stuff, it just paralyzes. I, I can't go hang out with those people. What would I say to them? I mean, they're so bad. How can I operate with them? You're the very kind of person that Jesus calls to and says, don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize your own sin? Don't you realize what I've saved you from? Come, that you might be able to believe in me and see yourself for who you are and to minister to others who desperately need me as well. Don't be afraid. Come. And the last one is, do you think you can do it yourself or that Jesus gave you a jump start at the cross? You know, there are, there are all kinds of people who grow up in the church and they really do view their Christianity as Jesus gave me a jump start. You know, my battery was dead. Jesus pulled up, hooked up the wires, gave me a jump start, and now I've got to get out there and live right so that, so that Jesus will know that I am the kind of person. He, he didn't make a mistake in choosing me. If you're that kind of person, Jesus calls you to be confronted with the fact that, you know what, your battery is not the battery. Jesus basically said, your engine's shot, your battery's dead, and He puts a new engine and gives you the Spirit, which is the engine, the reality of life and love and happiness. And that's what Christians live off of, not themselves. It's the power of God through the working of the Holy Spirit. You need to come and believe that and submit yourself to the King and recognize that apart from Him, all your good deeds amount to absolutely nothing. We need Jesus from start to finish. There will never be a moment in the rest of our lives as Christians, both now and in eternity, where our whole salvation does not hang on the person and work of Christ. It will always be so. And that's why heaven will always be filled with people who are singing and declaring the greatness of our God and the glory of His Son and the salvation He has given to us. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.